there was enemy, you saw them, they were shooting at you, you were shooting back. You grew very quickly to understand that, you know, your life was on the line and you had to come to terms with that. Going out the gate today, you could get killed. If you weren't at peace with that, it wasn't the place for you to be. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is in my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where you know you were going to funerals quite Do often. I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, or what can you do for your country? The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Mark Doreen is a veteran of the Special Air Service Regiment. He deployed multiple times to Afghanistan. He experienced long-range reconnaissance missions, more kinetic operations, and was injured by an improvised explosive device. He also worked at the Australian Embassy in Kabul. Today, he runs his company, Point Assist. Its goal, to assist people to evolve through experience. This is his conversation with Thomas Kay. I'm Thomas Kay, speaking today with Mark Doreen. Mark, welcome to Life on the Line. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Mark, let's start off from the beginning. What can you tell us about your childhood? My childhood was pretty normal, standard for the 80s, I suppose. Grew up, both parents still together, had good parents. We were pretty outdoor-orientated family, so a lot of fishing and hunting, a lot of weekends away with the family when I was young. I grew up in Tassie, so didn't really leave the state at all, really, until I joined the Army except for one weekend where I went to Melbourne for the football. But a good childhood, good youth, yeah. Did you have any military experience in your family? A little bit, not much that I knew about when I was young. I had an uncle that was a career soldier, went to Vietnam, and my grandfather on my mother's side served in the Second World War in Darwin and New Guinea. But on my father's side, not a lot until you go right back to the First World War, I don't think. I had some great uncles that served in the First World War, but I never knew them. What made you consider a career in the Army? Yeah, I think it was my mum's encouragement in the end. In the early 90s, when I was looking for work, I was not really into school too much, so I was pretty keen on an apprenticeship finishing year 10. And for a couple of years, I was trying to get a motor mechanics apprenticeship. I loved uh, motorbikes and trucks and, and vehicles, cars when I was a kid, and really struggled to get a job. There'd always be 100 applications going in and you'd get down to the last few and I'd been in the Army cadets for a little while, did a lot of different things as a young fellow. Aussie played Aussie rules football and motorbike racing and scouts and did Army cadets for a little while. And in the end, it was my mum that said, why don't you try for an apprenticeship in the Army? And I thought, well, why not? Why don't I? The only reason I think I hadn't considered it because I didn't really consider the Army as a real job. Like it wasn't that job that you got that sets you up for life, I suppose. So it was my mum's encouragement that sent me into recruiting to try and get an army apprenticeship as a motor mechanic. So walk us through that sign-up process, uh, going to try and get the apprenticeship to where you eventually went to. Funny story, I um, along the line of going into army recruiting in Hobart, I was also applying for every motor mechanic apprenticeship going over a few years. And at recruiting, you just went through, did all the, um, the testing that you had to do for motor mechanics apprenticeship. There was not only aptitude testing, 
for your grades and that psych testing that they did, but there's also that mechanical theory testing. They did a bit of that. And in the end, I actually got the apprenticeship. I remember the very last visit to recruiting that I went in, spoke to the army sergeant that was there that had done the bulk of the recruiting and then went up to the upstairs office where the recruiting officer was in his office to sit down and have him congratulate me. You've passed, you've been selected, you're off to Albury-Wodonga, I think it is, Bonagilla, to the Army Motor Mechanics School where the apprentices went. And it was kind of in that moment that I'd changed my mind. Because I'd been in recruiting now and I'd watched all the videos of all the different jobs you could do in the Army, I just changed my mind. I didn't want to be working on Land Rovers anymore. I wanted to run around the, the bush and shoot guns and blow things up. And so that I just literally changed my mind on the day and went down that different path. How'd your family take that pivot? They were probably a little bit oblivious to it, I suppose. By this point that I was going into recruiting, it was just a matter of Mark's considering going into the army for a job. He's gone to apply for a motor mechanics apprenticeship. There was not really a discussion too much after I'd gone to recruiting and was applying for jobs. I do remember my father saying to me, which sort of stuck with me for years and resurfaced, I suppose, after I started going to Afghanistan. I remember my father saying to me as I was going off to infantry school in the end, off to Kapuka, basic training and then infantry training. I suppose he could remember his uncles that had come back from those earlier wars saying to me, hey, you do realise that you're going to join the army. People are going to shoot at you. Like, life's not going to be easy. Is that what you want? I was a young 18-year-old and I'm like, yeah, Dad, like, I'm busy now, I'm off. So, yeah, I remember that sticking with me years later. How was the infantry school for you? I enjoyed it. There was a bit of a lag time between changing over from being a motor mechanic apprenticeship to going actually into general enlistment. And so I joined the Army Reserves for about eight months in that period. So I'd done infantry, Army Reserve infantry training. At the time, the Army still sent you back to do basic training again. They didn't, the regular Army didn't recognise Army Reserve basic training or Army Reserve infantry training. I'd done that two-week Army Reserve infantry course and I'd been an Army Reserve infantryman for a bit over six months. So It was tough. It was hard work. I didn't find Kapuka challenging. I just found it hard work. Infantry school I found challenging, but in a good way. I enjoyed it. We were shooting guns and blowing up claymores and firing machine guns. You know, digging trenches and pack marching was hard work, but it was enjoyable and a great bunch of guys, so I enjoyed it. So what followed on after infantry school? I went to one hour, which I wanted to do. After what I learned at infantry school in Singleton, we had a suite of our corporals training us. And one of the corporals at infantry school was a Somalia veteran. I think he must have nearly got posted to uh, the infantry training centre as soon as he got back from Somalia. So he'd come down and all the corporals we had in our platoon were great and good instructors and, and great soldiers. But there was this one guy that had this operational experience. And at the time, I just thought, well, I'd like to go to that battalion. That's got all the experience. So I put down one hour as my first choice and, and that's where I got to go up to Townsville. Where did the um, the pathway to becoming an infantry sniper come in? Probably not until I got to the battalion. I'd read books. Being in the Army cadets, I'd read books about the military, probably mostly American, Vietnam sort of era books as a kid before I joined. But until I got to 1RR, I didn't realise how naive I was about the Army and the different jobs in the battalion and things like that. The standard at the time was you get there, you do two years in the rifle company and get good at being a basic infantryman. And as I was doing that, I became the scout in my section and I enjoyed that job. And so from being the scout in the section, in the battalion at the time, they would run a pre-selection for 
the sniper section, which was a two-week course, and they would get anyone in the battalion who wanted to go. They would come in and do an interview, and the snipers that were in the battalion at the time would then select the course panel for the sniper pre-selection course, and then uh, we'd go and do this pre-selection course. In that selection course, they would rate the participants. The top tier of guys that were available for the actual sniper course would then get to go on the course. Funnily enough for me, I didn't rate in the top tier of blokes on that pre-selection course. I didn't botch it, but I just wasn't the best there. So I went back to my rifle company, which was Charlie Company, while some other guys got selected to go do the sniper course. At the end of that year, about six months later, the battalion was running its courses period and there was a recon course. And so I went on the recon course, did quite well, got selected to go to recon platoon, which I did for 12 months. And then the next year, they didn't, I don't think they ran a sniper pre-selection course the next year. So I was a guy that already passed that pre-selection course. I got selected to go and do what the battalion had just raised, what they called the number twos course was. So up until about that 19, 1996 period, there was only the sniper course. You went to Singleton, did the six-week course to get qualified as an infantry sniper. In about 1996, they started what they called the number twos course, where it was a two-week course. You didn't do as much of the planning and things like that. You just had to pass the sniper badge test, which was the stalking and judging distances and, and shooting and things like that. We went away and did a two-week sniper's number two course. I passed that and then got posted to the sniper section in one hour. So what actually is an infantry sniper and how does it differ from a regular infantry soldier? You work in a lot smaller teams. As a sniper, you've really got to focus and get good at your basic soldier skills, things like navigation and camouflage and concealment and all those types of skills. The ones that you would think a basic soldier needs to know, you need to be good at, you need to be a good shot. And that's the main reason for that is the capabilities that an infantryman has to maintain, how long he would stay in the field without resupply and the size of the group that he works in, the smallest group you'll ever work in or you would work in in my day was a 10-man section. Even if your section was under man, be six men, but normally a platoon. So there's going to be more than 20 guys. As a sniper, you might be out as a pair. So actually getting to your area of operations, you've got to navigate yourself. There's no relying on the section commander who's got more experience. So all your basic skills you had to be better at. The two things we focused on as snipers, one was the destruction of the enemy, the same as any infantry soldier, but it was more the long-range shooting piece where a normal infantryman might be shooting out to 300 metres, we had to be able to shoot out to 600 metres, so it was further. And then we also were trained heavily in the intelligence gathering piece, so going out into the field, finding the enemy, observing them, or gathering information on terrain and things like that, and then taking back to the battalion headquarters. As a sniper, you would generally work directly to the CO of the battalion as opposed to a company commanding officer. You mentioned before about photography being a part of the sniper role. Were you doing any of the photography at this point? We did a bit on the reconnaissance course. We did more on the sniper course, I remember. A lot of the gear when I did my sniper course in the battalion was old gear. The rifles we had, the old Parker Hale, I remember getting them. They were old. The barrels were shot out. I remember the scopes that we had, the old SRT scope, pretty much one of those scopes like Captain Cook had, you know, you pull it out and... It was a lot of old school gear. The camera gear that we had was no different. They were just old, worn out cameras, wet film cameras. So we sort of did a bit of training and we learnt to take photos on wet film so that we could take those back to the battalion headquarters and put them in our reports and things like that. So that was just a, for intelligence gathering? Yep, 
just for the intelligence gathering purpose. And yeah, I mean, it was kind of my first introduction into photography, which is something I really enjoy now. What made you decide to attempt SASR selection? Again, for me, it wasn't really something I knew a lot about. In the infantry battalion, going through recon platoon for a year and then going through the sniper section for a year, it was a bit of a general pathway that lots of the soldiers before me that I looked up to had done. Some of them had gone away and done SA selection and not come back because they got selected and stayed there. And some had gone away and done selection and, and come back for whatever reason. So it just seemed like a this natural pathway that it was something that most guys that I was working with had attempted at one point. On top of that, my immediate peers that I'd joined the battalion with that had been in recon platoon with and were in sniper section in at the time, my good mates, if you like, a few of those guys said, well, I might give this SA selection a go. And I was just kind of said, oh, well, I'll give it a go too then and did the training and off I went. And that was uh, after the 12 months in sniper section at the end of 97. Did you have anyone else going through the training process prior to selection with you to get you up to speed? Only my mates that I trained with, but they hadn't done selection either before. So there's always a few stories around. There was a lot less information around SAS selection in 97 than there is today. There was no books about it. There was no podcast that you could listen to that would explain about it. So you could talk to a few guys that had gone and done it and come back to the battalion. You wouldn't doubt their advice ever, but you're always conscious that the guys giving you advice on selection weren't the ones that had actually passed. They were the ones that had been there and maybe been injured or maybe withdrawn at own request, but they'd come back to the battalion. They were able to pass on the advice. But then the guys that you were training with and prepping yourself for the course, they were guys exactly the same as you normally that hadn't done it before. I had a couple of guys, there might have been maybe about four of us from sniper section that year that did selection. There was a couple that I trained with. All of you successful or only yourself? No, no, a couple of us got in. One of my good mates, one of the guys that I trained with most of all, also got selected the same year. So what can you tell us about your experience on the selection course? Yeah, the selection course for me in 97 was hard. They worked you. <laughs> and towards the end of the course, physical things that I found the hardest was the volume of work towards the end of the course, the lack of food and sleep. Personally, I just remember the course being hard. Towards the end of the course, just before it was finished, there were people physically collapsing with exhaustion, taken away in the ambulance and you didn't see them again. It was hard work. When you hear stories of people going through selection courses more recently, do you consider your selection course and the differences? Oh, good question. I think that I think the selection course at SASA, I mean, I understand now I've been separated from it for a little while now, but the selection course I was on and the ones I instructed on later parts of my career, they were very similar. The actual pattern of the course, sometimes the scenarios would change or sometimes the actual physical activities would change, but the actual theme to it and what happened when was reasonably similar. You can't just work everyone to death in the first 24 hours because they won't make the full duration of the course, which runs for weeks. There's always this ongoing joke in SAS that, you know, my course was the hardest course. I mean, that's because you were on it. Yeah, I think all the courses are hard. They're relative to the people. I know guys that did several of those courses. I think I would have struggled. I mean, I didn't have to do more than one, but I think I would have struggled to do more than one because one of the things that I found that helped me was I just kept doing what they told me I had to do at the time. Like I didn't know what was coming up next. If I had have known on day one how exhausted I was going to be on day 20, that would have been a lot to step up on day one and volunteer to start again. So the course is hard. I mean, there's 
I don't think there's too much more to say about it, I suppose. I never, for myself personally, I didn't really ever see myself withdrawing. And it's kind of an interesting thing that I've had a few conversations with my partner now. She's like, what did you have that got you through it? And I don't know. I just didn't want this person to tell me when I had to quit. I trained as hard as I could before I got there. And if on the day they sent me home, well, that's their choice. It's their course and it's their unit. If they were waiting for me to quit, I just had in my head that I wasn't going to quit. I was going to be there at the end and they could decide then whether they wanted me to serve in their unit or not. Making it to the end, I was one of the guys who got selected. So what happened after your selection course? For me, so we finished ours. It was around October, November in 97. We went from uh, the training area in Perth that it was finished at. For me, it was at Bindoon. We went back to Swanbourne Barracks where we were. It was kind of the first time we'd gotten to Swanbourne Barracks. They then separated the course out of everyone that had finished. There was a couple that weren't selected, so they got taken away. They then basically came out as a group, said, hey, you guys have all been selected to continue training, head up to the boozer and, and have a beer, welcome to the regiment. We stayed for probably about a week or five days, and then we went on leave. Went back to our units, packed up all our gear, and I spent that Christmas driving from Townsville to Perth. It's changed a bit now. But that's what we did. And then the next year in 98, we started our reinforcement cycle. So we just did that full year of courses, all all suite of courses that they run to get you up to the standard that they required for a squadron operator. And then by the end of 98, I got posted to my squadron. Your first notable gig in the regiment is a domestic operation, Operation Gold at the 2000 Sydney Olympic Games. What can you tell us about that? Oh, yeah, at the time, it was the big job in town. For me, personally, normally when you finished your Rio, your reinforcement cycle, you'd get posted in to the squadron that was finishing its cycle. At the time, the squadrons went through this three-year cycle where they'd do training and courses and practice war roles. And then their third year was normally the domestic counterterrorism piece, the black role, they called it, because you'd always, you know, in these black suits doing the domestic counterterrorism, saving the lives of the hostages. That was the third year. And normally the Rios would come into the year one squadron so that they could get a couple of years of training in before they went on domestic counterterrorism. It was, it is a big deal. But for me, they were short on snipers. And because I'd been a sniper in the battalion, they then posted me into two squadron, which was going to the Olympic Games. And as soon as I got there, sent me away to do the whole suite of SAS sniper courses, which was quite a lengthy amount of time. I had to do the six weeks, but six week basic sniper course, and then the four weeks domestic counterterrorism sniper course. There was a few more shooting packages, I think, different weapons, and then eventually rotated into two squadron, which was already twelve months out, starting to get ready for the Sydney Olympic Games. How did that differ for you by working in a domestic environment, an urban environment, with the Olympic Games to what you'd been training for previously? They worked as hard. Typical regiment, they demand high standards of everyone and to achieve those high standards, you work hard to get to them. So the first thing I realised was how hard we were working to get good at our basic jobs. Shooting is an obvious example where we'd spend about three days a week on the long range shooting range, another day on all our other shooting skills on the short ranges. We would stay back at least one night a week to shoot in the dark. They trained us really hard to get us to a high standard. The other thing to answer your question that I noticed straight away was I all of a sudden had this operation that, be it the domestic one, we had this job that we had to get to standard 
to go and perform. Something I would see in later years going to Afghanistan and back where we would train up for a deployment. You know, it was my first example where I was training to do a, a specific job for a deployment. I hadn't really had that in one area. You just trained to get good at skills, not so much for the job that you needed to do. That was not a job to go away on an exercise to do the job, but an actual operational role that you needed to fill. So there was this drive and determination to achieve the capability that was demanded of you because the army was telling the government they had it. And so you had to reach it. And this was a joint environment, I'm guessing, the working on Operation Gold. So was this the first time that you're working with tri-service, also state police forces, et cetera? Yeah, I think so. I think for me it was. I was junior trooper, but we were quite often, you know, we had the Blackhawks was aviation assets was a big is a good example. We had a lot of aviation assets because we needed to work with them should we be needed in real time. So we trained with them. The build-up time before the Olympics, we spent probably eight months or something in Sydney. A lot of our year was spent in Sydney the year before the Olympics. And so we were doing some pretty big exercises where the police were there. We were actually going to Olympic Park to do surveys on the venues and things like that. There was a lot of operational focus and everyone was coming together for it. So we were working with the Navy regularly, aviation assets, police emergency services, as you say. I was also a trained medic and we would spend a lot of time with New South Wales Ambulance at the time. The military and the ambulance service had an agreement where we could go out and be observers and that was hugely valuable to a medic to actually see people competent and good at their jobs working. Can you talk about anything that actually happened during Operation Gold? So what your role was during the actual operation, so when the Olympic Games were in motion? Yeah, not really. I suppose once the... Once the game started, we were pretty much on standby for that two-week period. By that stage, the squadron, we were trained up, we were ready to do our job, and we were then just on pause, I suppose, ready to operate if we were needed. Following Operation Gold, what happened next for you? I think it happened for the whole Army. (laughs) So while we are at the Sydney Olympic Games, the Army deployed its first troops to East Timor with the unrest that occurred there as the Indonesians withdrew. The other squadron... That had a lot of my mates in it, whether it's the first one to go to um, East Timor. We were obviously committed to the Olympic Games, so we stayed and did that job. But by the time we'd come off the Olympic Games, after our year in Sydney, had a bit of leave back in Perth, a lot of the other squadrons that were in Perth had already sent, you know, rotated through Timor. There'd been a few rotations of guys through Timor doing different jobs. And then it was our turn to go overseas and fill some of those roles. So 2000. Sydney for me and the Olympic Games. I got Christmas leave, I think, at the end of the year. Early in 2001, I was off to East Timor. My role there was mostly a reconnaissance role, sort of the old school patrolling in the jungle. And we were kind of looking for militia still, but there wasn't a lot of militia about. So it was probably classic reconnaissance sort of work. But we also performed a few other roles. We would do some humanitarian aid patrols. I was just talking about the medical schools I had. So we'd go out to some villages and run some medical clinics sometimes. So we got a variety of jobs in, but the main one was that basic sort of reconnaissance skills that we had. Did you have to do the same sort of training before going to Timor that you had to do for Operation Gold? No. So for Operation Gold, for me, it was really part of that sniper troop providing that capability to rescue hostages Whereas with it shifting when I went to Timor as more of that field reconnaissance kind of role, I switched back to a lot of the skills that I'd been retrained in the regiment, but they were the skills that I'd learnt in the infantry battalion as a recon soldier. 
So we're just going out in small teams, taking our notebooks and cameras, observation posts on border crossing points and things like that, watching for militia coming back and forth, using the medical schools, so going out to villages, talking to the villages, running clinics. It was a lot of training that you already had, but the pre-deployment for that was more getting back to the field craft and less sort of domestic counterterrorism piece, which is, I think, generically always going to be in that urban environment where people are are living, whereas East Timor for me was more that rural environment out in the bush. Can you share any experiences from your Timor trip? I was fortunate. My trip was a little bit longer than a lot of guys in where I worked in Timor, so I ended up staying over six months, but that was because of the elections that was held at the end of the year. So it was really rewarding, I suppose is the right word. It was rewarding to be in Timor for six months and everyone that I was working with, including the infantry units that were there. One hour was there when I arrived and four hour came about halfway through my trip. Everyone was trying to make East Timor safe so that they could get their first actual elections and the elections went off really well. They elected their first government and so that was rewarding to be there for that, absolutely. Yeah, I suppose little funny stories for me. A good one is on one occasion, one of the infantry units had a clash with some militia and because we were trained in tracking, they sent us out to try and track down the militia that the infantry unit had had an encounter with. The way we would do that is normally just fly out in the Black Hawk and rope down into the vicinity of where the occurrence had happened and then start tracking from there. We were fast roping, which is just a big single thick rope out of the helicopter. On this particular day, I'd been doing my fast roping in Australia, doing the domestic counterterrorism where you're roping on the tops of buildings, you would normally wear big welders gloves or something like that. In case the rope was gonna be 90 foot, your hands were gonna get hot. In Timor, up until this particular incident, about halfway through the trip, I was just wearing Nomex gloves because the ropes were always, the helicopter was just hovering off the ground. You weren't going far, your hands didn't get hot. And on this particular day, we had got reacted into an area that had high trees. So we had to rope a long way. And what compounded to my problems on the day was halfway through the trip in the tropical environment, my Nomex gloves had rot, you know, were deteriorating with rot. And so my gloves just ripped off halfway down the rope. And so I had to stop myself <laughs> almost with single Nomex gloves, which ended up patrolling around, looking for militia, tracking them with burnt hands. <laughs> there was a few encounters around the same time, but by the time those elections were coming along and we're talking about mid-2001, there wasn't a lot of militia activity anymore. There was a bit of criminal activity going on. There's still a bit of smuggling back and forth across the border, but the militia had been faced with over 12 months of the Australian Army in East Timor. I suppose by that point, had, were coming to the conclusion that they weren't going to win. They had started to die off a lot by that stage. Were you in Timor for September 11? Yeah, I was by one day. September 12 was my initial date to rotate back to Australia. Yeah, that huge pivotal moment that everyone remembers where they were. I was in my tent in my mozzie dome packing my gear up and I remember actually someone coming in saying, hey, you should come and check out the news. Like there's some crazy events going on in America. They look like terrorist attacks. And I literally said to the person, mate, I've got to finish packing my gear. I've got to be up early to go back to Dilly. I'm going back to Australia tomorrow. I'll just read about it on the flight or something. And so I kind of paid it off and went to bed. And it wasn't until the next morning that I woke up and it was still on the TV, which would have been 
probably the end of the day in America. As soon as we got back to Australia, we then started getting some briefings, I suppose, on what they knew and what was occurring, what was happening across the Australian Army. And some of my colleagues, because I'd just returned from Timor, my plan didn't really change. I was still set to go on a couple of weeks' leave after being at Timor for six months. My mates that were in the other squadrons, again, were getting ready to go overseas should the Australian government commit troops to help America. So not long later, in 2002, you were deployed with F Troop 2 Squadron to Afghanistan. Can you walk us through that? The big learning curve, I suppose, where up until this time, I'd played within the Australian Army. I'd got good at my job, my basic soldier skills within the Australian Army. I was in the third squadron to go away in 2002. Obviously, Australia sent troops in late 2001. I'm not sure what the date was. Two rotations had gone through. I was in the third one. Earlier in the year, I suppose, maybe May or so we went. I can't remember the actual date. But it was as soon as you arrived, it was pretty clear what a big deal this was, mainly because we were getting there and seeing the American presence. I mean, they'd established Bagram Air Base by the time I arrived. It was pretty rudimentary and it was nothing compared to what it ended up being 20 years later. To a young Australian soldier who had just been to Timor, it was a pretty big deal being there with all the American assets and the actual size of the commitment to initially fight al-Qaeda and the Taliban out of the country. So that was all still there. It was a big deal. The job I got on that first trip was a really good job. I was My core skill was as a, as a mobility operator. Had our long-range patrol vehicles that a lot of people have seen. We would operate out of those vehicles and do big, long patrols. I think initially the American hierarchy didn't believe the Australian officers when they the Australian officers told them how long we could go out into the field for, we could be self-sustaining and do these reconnaissance tasks. And they gave us some and that's what we went. We went away and looked out into the field, looked after ourselves and, and sent back information. My first patrol after getting to Afghan in 2002, I think was about 70 days or something along those lines. We were out in the field for a long time. That strategic reconnaissance, talking to villagers, looking for the remnants of al-Qaeda, which by this stage had mostly either blended back into the... Taliban had either blended back into the population or most of it had gone off to Pakistan, but we were still looking for them and talking to the villagers and we're out there in the areas where no one else could go. And if they could go there, they couldn't stay there for long. And so 70 days out on that Pakistan border, sort of operated south of Kaust, out to the east of Ghazni and Gardez. Like, it was a really good job. You got to meet the locals. The locals were happy to see you. Like, it's sort of probably lost on a lot of the soldiers that did their deployments to Afghan from 2005, six onwards. But in 2002, when I was there, the locals were wrapped that we'd come and kick the Taliban out and they were optimistic that life was going to be better. So that was good. We got to see, I suppose, the genuine Afghan culture where they would invite you into their homes and give you dinner and they would look after you. Was the style of work that you were doing in Afghanistan very different to what the modern style of special forces work is today? Probably the answer is no. As a special forces unit, you have to be prepared to do whatever gets asked of you. Yes, they have their capabilities that they have to maintain, but when all of a sudden tomorrow a job turns up that nobody had expected and no one knows how to do, the guys they're going to ask to do it are the special forces guys because, you know, they've got the training to be adaptable. And that's kind of, I suppose, what happened through the time in Afghanistan, that roles kind of changed as it went and we just had to adapt to that. The job I was doing in 2002 was the core SAS long-range reconnaissance outside the capability 
of the normal army. And I would be surprised today if they're not back practicing that again because they've gotten a little bit out of practice because those later years, as you say, it was just all about the war fighting. My later deployments, we were trying to push the enemy back so that the reconstruction teams and the mentoring teams could do their jobs without getting attacked daily by the enemy. So the role changed. It, it kind of needed to a bit at the time. Like we couldn't stay out there just doing reconnaissance, letting the enemy have their own freedom of movement, doing whatever they wanted. So in answering your question, the job we were doing in 2002 was a core SAS job, that long range reconnaissance piece. And I would be surprised if they're not rehearsing and practicing that again today. With this being your third operation, going from domestic to Timor to Afghanistan, what were your boots on the ground experience as you'd set your feet down for each operation? Yeah, Afghanistan, it was immediate that this was a war zone. While by mid to late 2002, the enemy weren't really bringing the fight to us, the feel there was it was a war zone. I mean, we had a few near misses with minefields because it's just the country that it is. They were, you know, old Russian minefields and we drove into a couple by accident and it was the locals that came out to say, hey, that's a minefield you're in, back out. So there was the gravity of where we were. It hit you pretty quickly. A couple of the earlier squadrons in late 2001 and early 2002 obviously had some skirmishes had a couple of battles with the enemy um, but by the time we there we were there there was no real battles but the criminals everyone carried guns the criminals especially carried guns and they were happy to use them on a few occasions we apprehended what we thought were enemy combatants and then sort of worked out later that potentially they were just criminals but the gravity of the country wasn't lost on us like the minefields how old it was you know those old mud brick compounds and the areas you're driving around and and the hardness of the people was completely different to where we'd grown up where we'd come from in australia so following your 2002 deployment you spent a couple of years when you came back in training that seems like it might have been a bit of a change of pace for you. Massive change of pace. <laughs> yeah, it was huge. I mean, at the time, I was going to get out of the Army. I'd now been in the Army nearly 10 years, I think. Actually, yeah, just over 10 years. And uh, I thought to myself, well, like I had when I joined, it's now time to get out and get a proper job, to go and get that thing that I can do for the rest of my life. My son had just been born as well. So I was like, I'm going to go home, focus on family, get that nine to five job and, and find that career that I can spend the rest of my life doing. When I went to the army and told them that I was going to discharge in Perth, they said to me pretty quickly, well, why don't you just get posted home to your home location? I don't know whether they were smarter than me. They probably were, the old SSM. But he said to me, that way you can have an easier transition out of the military. You can actually instead of being operational right up to the day you leave, you can take a bit of time to plan your actual transition. Good advice. Maybe he was just thinking I'd go away for a little while and because I hadn't discharged, I'd come back. And that's exactly what I did. Pretty quickly for me, I suppose, I got posted back to Tasmania, back to the Armour Reserve Unit. I was a Carter staff running training and it was rewarding work. But yeah, as you said, huge change of pace, very different to the operational roles that I was used to. After being there for about six months, I thought to myself, no, I'm a soldier. That's what I do. That's who I am. I'm going to go back to the regiment. And you don't just go back to the regiment. You then put in your interest to return. And I did that and it got accepted. And so my posting cycle was then just normal. I was to do two years outside the unit in a training role and then go back to Perth. Did you enjoy your time doing the training role? The army work wasn't rewarding. It didn't have that operational focus that I talked about at the start that I had 
for the Olympics or team or like you had this real focus that when you were training, it was for this. Whereas back in the armor reserve, I just didn't quite have that focus. What was hugely good for me personally, which probably prolonged my career in the army, was time with family. I took long service leave, had some time off, spent some time with my family, as in my brother and father and mum, spent time with my kids and that was good. So in 2006, you're back to the regiment and deployed twice to Afghanistan. From what you can discuss about those deployments, how had the mission changed? Yeah, initially 2006 when I got back there, because I'd been away for a couple of years, it wasn't just immediately go back to a, a squadron and become operational again. I got posted to the training squadron back in Perth and that was so I could get my own skills up to speed, I suppose. The regiment used me as an asset to train the Rios that were just past selection, but also for me to bring me up to speed with the evolving way they did business. After my year in the training squadron, I then went to three squadron as a mobility operator again, and three squadron went off to Afghanistan that year for the fighting season for a four-month deployment. That arrival back in Afghanistan, while I kind of knew in the back of my head it was going to be very different than it had been in 2002, just from talking to my friends that had done the rotations in late 2005 and 2006. You know it, but you don't understand it until you get there and see it. That was, for me, my first big experience of war. There was enemy. You saw them. They were shooting at you. You were shooting back. You grew very quickly to understand that, you know, your life was on the line and you had to come to terms with that. Going out the gate today, you could get killed. If you weren't at peace with that, it wasn't the place for you to be. And so, yeah, that was my introduction to war. And what didn't take long in the trip, I think we did a bit of a nursery patrol where we drove off into an area where they didn't expect many enemy to be, came back and after being there a couple of weeks, we were out in the field and we were having some pretty big contacts with the enemy. So this deployment was with L Troop 2007. So it'd become much more of a kinetic trip. Was there still elements from your first trip in 2002 in play? Yeah, it was a little bit interesting from that regard in the fact that we were trying to operate, albeit in 2002, we were kind of all over the country. The squadron was just spread out over Afghanistan, wherever the American hierarchy wanted to send us. By 2007, obviously Australia was concentrating on Uruzgan and we were based out of TK, but we were still kind of trying to use the same TTPs, the same techniques that we'd used in 2002 with our long-range patrol vehicles driving out of TK into the valleys to confront the enemy, to push the enemy back away from TK because they were moving in. It was a lot harder to do because you're now driving up and down the same roads. In 2002, where my patrol drove out of Jalalabad and we just kept driving. We never came back. You know, as I just said, 70 days later, we got picked up by a helicopter. In TK, we would drive out of TK, up a valley to Chora, fight with the enemy, and then we'd have to drive back to TK, which then led the enemy to start developing their ambush techniques where they could ambush us with IEDs but not come out and fight us. The enemy knew that if they confronted us in a pitch battle, a more conventional battle, they were going to lose. Our soldiering skills were far superior, our weaponry, fighting capability was far superior. So they were, you know, they're not silly. They they were adaptive to how they could fight us and kill us without committing themselves to that battle. And so unless we really encroached and fought them over a a safe haven that they'd built, there was a few on the outskirts of Uruzgan. They would normally come in and attack and, and leave again, or they were starting to develop those IED capabilities so they could ambush us and not get caught. 
So this trip, there was a lot less meeting the locals. Yeah, there was a lot less meeting the locals. And the locals knew, I mean, we were coming and going from TK and when we were in the field, we would sleep in the desert. It was the safest place for us. The enemy couldn't sneak up on us. We were, you know, find yourself a nice big football field out in the middle of the desert and just sleep out and you could, you know, run a picket, night vision goggles, make sure the enemy tried, didn't try to keep creep in because they weren't as accurate with their rockets and mortars and direct fire you know, weapons, machine guns and things like that, we could keep them at bay. If we went down to live in the villages with the villagers, the enemy could creep in on us and we would have taken a lot more casualties. But then what occurred was the enemy were allowed to sleep in the villages. The enemy were allowed to sleep in the villages because if the villagers tried to stop them, the enemy would just cut their heads off. And so just through terrorising the locals, they got their way, I suppose. So the villagers then had to be very careful about who they were seen to be supporting. They wouldn't not talk to us if we went down to talk to them. Secretly, deep down inside, they were probably hoping, or a lot of them were probably hoping we'd prevail. But they knew also that the enemy was standing over there watching them talk to us. So they couldn't seem to be supporting us. Otherwise, there'd be repercussions for them and their families and things like that. It was, it was a difficult environment where in 2002, doing the strategic reconnaissance, the mobility operations work. But by late 2007, it was dangerous. And I think in actual fact, the army, even by late 2007, was still catching up to how dangerous it actually was on a daily basis for guys that were outside the wire. I mean, we're fighting a war and we hadn't fought one since Vietnam. Not like that. How did your deployment finish up? For me, in the back of a Black Hawk getting sent to hospital. <laughs> so I've told the story a few times now. So towards the end of our deployment was around end of August, start of September. There was a base at the top of Uruzgan province at Kaz Uruzgan. There was a fob called Anaconda and there was American ODA team there, bunch of Green Berets, training locals, and they were actually in real trouble at that point in late 2007. The enemy had actually put frontal assaults in on their position, as in like platoon-sized enemy groups just assaulting the compound to try and overrun it. Uh, up until we got there, the Americans had kept them at bay, but it wasn't lost on them either how dire the situation was. I mean, they were getting attacked and shot at every day, and then regularly they were getting assaulted. So it was decided that the Australians would go up there and do a big peace for a few weeks. The commandos went up there, we, we went up there to help out, push the enemy back a bit, maybe cause some casualties, do some, some good for our side. There's really like two roads in and out. Commandos were driving in vehicles and we were driving in vehicles. So it wasn't like which road you were going to take. It was like, which road aren't you taking because we're on the other one. So we drove up there and the commandos drove up there as well. Two day drive on the way up. We had a few skirmishes. It was one of the biggest ambush positions I saw on that trip on the drive up where we stopped on the side of a river bank to have lunch on the second day just before driving into the township of Kazurizgan. And we conducted a clearing patrol around the vehicles before we stood everyone down. Pretty common practice for us. But it was probably kind of clear that it wasn't common practice for the Afghan or American troops in the area. Because as we got out of the cars and went to clear a small tree line, there was enemy in it. It was clear that they didn't expect us to come out and clear the trees before we started having lunch. There was only a couple there, thank goodness. We cleared through those trees and then had a look and what it appeared to me was that the group that was there was a small little caretaker unit for a position that they'd built. They'd dug in trenches and bunkers with overhead protection. It was quite impressive. If it had have actually been manned, and we were in the middle of the killing ground, really, where we'd stopped. 
If it actually had been manned, we would have had a pitch battle that day and we wouldn't have come off probably the best. Kazarizgan Rizgan wasn't looking that good. We moved into the American base and we then ran some operations around to their north, which was where a year later Mark Donaldson won his Victoria Cross. There was a lot of enemy up there. The operations we did up there, the commandos did some sweeps of the valley. I had a sniper heavy patrol. I'd gone from being the patrol to IC to the patrol commander because my patrol commander had injured himself just prior to those operations we did. Worked up around north of that base, lots of smaller contacts with the enemy. We kind of had the better of them for a bit, but then came to the end of however long we were there, maybe 10 days or something, I can't recall. It was time to drive back from Kazarizgan back to TK. Again, we didn't have a lot of options on which way to go. So we picked the one that we thought we could use the best and we took it we drove we actually patrolled through town starting at last light to clear the road make sure there was no ambushes on us leaving town i took my patrol and we did that the next morning the vehicles met us and we had to drive over a mountain pass and a few things led to us being delayed we had vehicles break down we got alternate tasks from higher to chase bad guys around on the way out but i think the delaying was able to allow the enemy to set up ids in the road as we we're leaving as we then drove down out of those mountains from the Kazurizgan side of the valley up over the mountains back down towards the Chora Charmiston side of the valley I think it is I drove my vehicle down the hill and hit an IED and so that injured myself and the driver pretty big day I suppose when you at the end of it, the day you're getting loaded into a Kazovac helo and, and sent off the hospital so that was the end of your deployment yeah, that was the end of deployment. At the time, getting medevaced out of the field, I couldn't feel my legs. Like, it, it was a big bang. There was a decent amount of bang in the road. I can actually remember flying through the air, so I wasn't unconscious at all. But looking back while I was airborne, I can remember seeing the LRPV probably a metre or two off the ground and talking about a seven-tonne vehicle, so that's a lot of bang in the road to lift that car off the ground. I landed and bounced a bit. I actually went to jump up to go back to the car and get my... M4 because I'd landed, I don't know what it was, like 15 metres or something from the car is how far I went through the air. And when I went to get up to go back to the car to get my rifle, obviously in my head I'm thinking this ID could be followed up with a more complex attack. They could have shooters in the hills type thing. I couldn't actually get up. I couldn't feel my legs. And so I literally had to wait for my teammates to come down the hill from the vehicle behind to start providing me first aid. One of the first things I do remember is my other vehicle in my patrol, the team members from it running past me. So they pretty much ran out straight away, put security out. One of the other guys, medics, came and got me. And then sort of Kazovac system pretty much started. It was maybe, I don't know, half an hour or so before the, maybe an hour before the helicopter got there, picked me up, took me off to the hospital. It wasn't too long. It was about the 24-hour mark that I started to get the feeling back in my legs. And after a whole swag of testing with the doctors at the Kandahar Hospital, they had a big hospital the American military at Kandahar and us. The doctors pretty much said it's just a shockwave that's gone through your body that's caused massive swelling. I mean, my whole body was purple pretty much just from the shockwave. I was very lucky that I hadn't really broken too many bones. I hadn't had any shrapnel injuries. It was just shockwave and it was the swelling that was actually compressing my spinal cord. It led me not to walk. So it only took about 24 hours and then I was sort of up on crutches and limping around and then it was just a slow evacuation back to Australia to go on sick leave and then rehab and get myself fit and able to return to work. What did your recovery process look like? Exactly that. I think maybe about a month, maybe about four weeks, just total sick leave. And then after that four weeks, it was into the pool. So you're visiting the military doctors quite regularly. And I do recall after a couple of weeks, 
the doctor saying to me, have you got your painkillers on you? And I'm like, yeah, they're in my day pack here. And I showed them to him and he took them off me. And it wasn't until that point that I realised I was still using these opioid painkillers that I shouldn't have been because it was the next day that I was like, hey, oh, I could really do with those <laughs> painkillers again. The rehab was pretty good. I mean, I then got into the pool and slowly back into the gym and just started that recovery process. It maybe took me a couple of months. It was probably about the four-month mark that I got asked, are you good to go back to Afghanistan again? And I said, yeah. So deployed again the next year in a different role, but wasn't as much kinetic war fighting, I suppose. So I got myself as good as I could before I went and off I went. So in 2009, you then transferred to the reserves. What prompted that decision? Yeah, I think my kids, mainly. My kids had moved back to Tasmania and I wanted to be with them. So they were a big part of that decision to finally get out of the regular army. But the other big part was my back. And physically, I was kind of still doing my best. It felt like life was one long rehab. I was always training. I was always trying to stay good to go. But medically, my back wasn't recovering pre-IED and my kids had gone back to Tasmania. So I wanted to move back to Tasmania. Again, actually, the army said to me, well, we'll send you on another posting. And they sent me back there on a posting. But on this posting, I was like, that's not what I want to do. I don't want to be in the army anymore. It's time to discharge. And at the same time as well, I got a job offer to go back to Afghanistan and work at the Australian Embassy as a security consultant. And I thought that would be, for me, a great option in the fact that I could live in Hobart and be around my kids half the time but still go away and do a job that was similar to some of the stuff that I used to do, but work with my mates again. So I was in a role at the Australian Embassy with a security team with guys that I'd known in the military, or if I didn't know them, they were ex-military guys like me as well. So I was with my people, I suppose. The job was hugely worthwhile. You know, I was still supporting our country in their efforts to stabilise Afghanistan, but I could live in Hobart at the same time and just fly in and out. And so that's what I did for a couple of years. How long was your trips over at the MC? They changed depending on who had the contract at the time. In those early years for me, in the second half of 2009 to 2010, we were doing six weeks on, six weeks off. That works yeah. well for the family. Yeah, um, it worked well for me. I mean, my, I'm sure my family would argue today that we would have rather have you home the whole time. But by going away and doing six weeks' work, still paid reasonably well back in 2009, 2010, I was able to earn some good money. And then when I came home for that six weeks, I was able to dedicate it to my family. So I was able to go to take my kids to school, go to swimming carnivals and spend time with the family for a good period and then go back to work again. The job was still still challenging. I mean, you're driving, the diplomats want to go out. They want to meet the locals. They want to do good. Not only did they have to go and see to the Afghan ministries to see their counterparts, but they wanted to go and visit the orphanages and see where the aid money was going and things like that. So it was a challenging job to take them around Kabul and to the outskirts of town. I did a trip with the Governor General around the country and the Ambassador. So it was a rewarding job. It was quite often challenging. I found the role challenging from the aspect that I'd done PSD jobs in the Army, Defence Minister to Iraq and Baghdad and Afghanistan and East Timor, but you had a you had big army behind you to help look after you should you get into trouble. You know, this massive logistics and ability. You always had guys to get you out of trouble if you got in it. Whereas as a civilian contractor, you didn't have that. If you got it wrong, if you made the wrong call and got yourself in a bad situation, there wasn't someone to automatically come and get you out of trouble. And the other thing was you didn't have a playbook anymore. Quite often you would get told by the army, you can do it this way, you can't do it that way. As a civilian contractor, 
you can do it anyway. You've just got to get your advice right because if you also get it wrong, it's all on you. So I found that bit hugely rewarding as well, like getting to and from work, traveling around on a civilian passport. I'd seen Australian contractors getting locked up in Dubai. I'd seen Australian contractors making mistakes, which led them to then get into trouble. You know, it had to be on your toes, I suppose, is the right way to put it all the time. Could we just get a grab explaining PSD, what that role is? Yep. So PSD or sort of security detachment kind of role is just another job that I was trained for in the special forces. It's where you've got someone of importance and they've got a job to go and do and you're the enabler now. You're the one that's taking them so that they can do their job and you're keeping them safe while they do it, basically. The great example is if you see the Prime Minister or you see the Defence Minister or uh, someone important travel overseas to a war zone where there's Australian troops, they're probably going to have their everyday security details that they have, but they're going to need some military security as well so that the military security detail can bring all the safety that comes with the military, the logistics that I was talking about, the intelligence as well, and things like that. But that PSD role or that security sort of detachment, personal safety, I've done it as well in my own civilian jobs where you might be taking a researcher or some other specialist, they might be a geologist or a community liaison person to a very remote place. It's still a very similar role. You're taking someone somewhere to do a job. Unlike when I was in the military and the special forces and I'm the reason that we need to go and do something, I've got the skills, whether it's to shoot an enemy or whether it's to gather intelligence on the battlefield. If I'm going to do it, it's me. But if I don't hold the skills, then it becomes that more of a protection role where I've got to take the person who's got the skills that's needed in that location, but they don't have the ability to get themselves to that location and back safely. You make the decision to go full-time again and have two final deployments with the SASR to Afghanistan. Within the bounds of what you can discuss, how had the role changed for yourself? It didn't just change for me. It changed massively for everyone, as I was saying, through the years, we were trying to adapt. We were still trying to give, I suppose, Afghanistan that best chance to, to be self-governing. Through my years working at the embassy in 2009, 2010, I stayed as an army reservist. And it was sort of mid-2010, the regiment actually, a guy I know rang me uh, and said, what are you up to? <laughs> Basically, we need a guy to be a liaison officer to do this particular job. Do you want to come back? When I went back, probably the shortage of people with specific supervisory skills was starting to become apparent. The guys that they had with the particular skills they needed were starting to get exhausted. And so for a reservist who was still physically able to come back and work in the field to volunteer to do so and was competent, they were happy to have the help. By the time I was back there in 2012, 2013, the job was just all about trying to keep the enemy at bay. The enemy had got very smart. Again, they knew they couldn't defeat us in this pitch battle. So they got really good at waiting us out. There's heaps of examples talking about the Taliban and anti-coalition sort of militias that were operating, spending time in Pakistan, coming across over the border, doing attacks and then heading it out again. And because Uruzgan was in southern Afghanistan, I mean, we were Kandahar and sort of southern Afghanistan were the places where they could come across, hit the coalition and still cause a bit of damage and then head back again. We were now trying to target the hierarchy, the enemy planners, the enemy leadership to degrade their actual capabilities. I mean, I think they were replacing their capabilities pretty quickly and the actual very senior enemy commanders weren't the ones 
coming across the border, instigating the attacks. So we were just fighting on a daily basis. It was now not safe to drive around. More than just myself had been blown up by IEDs. Guys had been killed. A lot of people had been blown up, a lot of injuries. And so it was more of this find the enemy, go in and destroy them, destroy their capabilities, the kill or capture missions that you've heard a lot about, and then get back to safety, get back to TK. As a nation, we couldn't afford to just be losing lots of guys, leaving them out into the field to get killed, I suppose, which is a good thing. <laughs> so we were doing a lot of flying in and out. By the time I got that back there in 2012, 2013, I had dedicated American helicopters to help us. We were finding the enemy hierarchy, flying out, fighting with them, doing as much damage as we could, capturing for intelligence purposes as many as we could and then getting back to TK and resetting. We were now at the point that the enemy would sometimes stay and fight. I kind of only found that on two occasions. One, they would be really junior and they didn't see that they had any other option but to stay and fight. Or the other one would be that they were in actually quite decent numbers. The commander would be demanding that his fighters fought to protect him. But a lot of the enemy as well were just stashing their weapons and trying to walk off. And so catching the enemy became difficult. By that last deployment I did, we were flying out and landing on the enemy. For me, the 2012-2013 trip was one of my most rewarding. I was working as an Afghan mentor. So we had SAS patrols flying into the field, conducting those kill or capture missions, but we were still trying to develop Afghan capability. And we were now getting dictated to us that we had to have a 50-50 partnering force. And so I worked with a few different Afghan units, but the better ones I enjoyed working with. I was in some instances by myself flying out into the field. My teammates would be nearby, but in the actual gunfights, on regular occasions, I'd just be with my Afghan counterpart, my Afghan teams that I was mentoring. And it's a hugely interesting experience to get into a shootout with a bunch of guys that you can't even talk to. Challenging to the next level. There were plenty of people that wanted to see us dead. So we were fighting regularly, still trying to be effective, still trying to degrade the enemy capability and bring everyone home. Yeah, it was challenging. With the mentoring of the local forces, were you doing just kill capture style missions or also high risk arrest missions or a variety? Yeah. No, we, we did both. So the killer capture piece was generally around the whole troop. The whole troop would have a targeting period. And as one of the patrol commanders in the troop, I would also have a, an area dedicated for me to build the intelligence picture to find the enemy. And so when we found the enemy, we would send it through our hierarchy for the mission to get approved. And they'd say, yep, that's objective such and such. Go and get him. The whole troop would fire up, Afghans, Aussies, and everyone, and out we'd go and try and arrest, kill or capture someone. But also working with the Afghans, they would quite often just have arrest tasks. And so they actually, in TK, the Afghans had a lawyer, and they would have guys that they want to go out and arrest. They would ask for an arrest warrant. He'd go, yep, you can go out and arrest that guy. And so on some occasions, we would just drive out of base. I'd jump in a Bushmaster, generally. The Afghans would jump in their ranges or whatever they had, and we'd drive into town to arrest someone. They were high-risk arrest. We were still finding that, that Close into TK, the enemy would again stash their gear, stash their weapons, and then try and get out. But it was that more high-risk arrest, I suppose. It was a slightly different mission set. Some of those I would do. I would try and take some enabling assets like a medic, a SIG, a couple of the engineers, because I didn't want to dig the bombs up and they were much better at it. They were braver than me, so take a couple of those guys with me. But those enablers, the Bushmaster drivers, I would quite often find on those high-risk arrest missions, they might be 90% Afghans. We weren't going as far out into the bad, bad lands, I suppose, but on the outskirts of TK or something, it was, it was a very different mission feel. Like the Afghans were kind of running it themselves and we were there to maybe call in some fire support, maybe call in a medevac if it needed. 
pretty much by the time we were leaving, the Afghans still didn't have their own air mobile medevac capability or anything like that. So they were relying on us for that. Other mission sets, there wasn't too many other mission sets that I did on that last six-month trip. I mean, we went a couple of times to watch the heroin get burnt, which was super interesting to drive out with my Afghan partnering force and watch them set fire to a couple of dump truck loads of heroin. Yeah, it was daily grind of kill or capture missions, trying to keep the enemy back so that it was almost by 2013, we were trying to keep the enemy back so we could just leave. If they weren't fighting us in TK, they were there. I had some of my partnering force get killed just in TK. Bad guy just walked up, shot someone. They were everywhere. It was almost from 2005 up to maybe 2009, we pushed them back. I mean, there was guys fighting on the edge of TK, myself in the Mirambad Valley in 2007, up around Chora and north of Chora in 2007, we were pushing the enemy back. Their safe havens were further out. By 2013, they still had those safe havens and they were sending teams in closer. That answers a bit of the next question, but you've been deployed to Afghanistan for pretty much over the 10 years by this point. How had you seen the country change over that time from first time you put the boots on the ground to the last time that you were leaving? I watched the people get tired. From the euphoric days of 2001, 2002, they were ecstatic. They thanked us for coming in and getting rid of the Taliban. And with the military, the time I spent in Kabul, you could just see the difference with anyone could go to school. Anyone could try and make a living. There was money in the country. People could get jobs. They were generally grateful. It's a hard one now in light of what the country's resorted back to, but it saddens me that in the end we let the people that were willing to blow up the civilian population with car bombs, we let them win because we weren't willing to make the sacrifice, I suppose. Whether that's right or wrong or not, we weren't willing to make the sacrifice in lives and time to stay there and see it through. In the end, the guy that was willing to send someone to blow up a mosque, send someone to blow up a school, that's the guy that prevailed at the end of the day. And so it's sad. By 2013, the Afghan population was tired. They just wanted us to go away because they were sick of the fighting and the Taliban weren't going away. We were either going to have to destroy them or stay for 100 years, I suppose. Who knows? I sometimes get frustrated now a little bit because I think back how long us and our coalition partners were willing to stay in Germany after the Second World War or how long we were willing to stay in Japan after the Second World War. We weren't willing to do that in Afghanistan. 20 years was our limit and we're off, and regardless of what the outcome was going to be. So I suppose I'm a little bit biased. I dedicated a good part of 20 years of my life to the country, both in the military for my deployments and eight years as a civilian. While you're working at the Australian Embassy in Kabul, you also founded Point Assist. What can you tell us about your company? Yeah, Point Assist was initially, I started it because I needed a company to contract myself through to security companies. That's initially all it was, this small contracting company. After working in Kabul for a little while, and I already talked about, you know, I might be doing six weeks on, six weeks off, or the later years contracting, I was doing eight weeks on, four weeks off. Inevitably, I was like, what can I do with my company on my time off? I loved hiking and trekking in Tasmania, so I thought I'd do a bit of hiking and trekking guiding down in Tassie. So I just started to change my company from being a security consultancy, I suppose, or safety consultancy, which was really just me, myself and an oppo if I needed a couple of people to do a job, became more of this adventure tourism sort of feel. And it's evolved a lot over the last however long it's been 2010 i started my company so yeah coming up to 13 years now i found in the early days 
I'd take a few people hiking every now and then, but it's hard to compete with a, you know, a big trekking company or a big adventure tourism company. You can't compete with their marketing budget when you're a small outfit like mine. All my clientele just came word of mouth. And so then as the years went by, I found people were coming to go hiking with me to hear about my experiences and to learn more about the questions I would generally get would be not so much about the wildlife in Tasmania or what rocks are these. They would be, how do we sterilise water? Talk to me about survival and things like that. So then I found that my actual business of taking people hiking was just the means of passing on knowledge. And so that's kind of what my business evolved into now. When people ask me today, what's your business? I no longer say it's a security consultancy or it's a safety consultancy. I tell people it's an experiential learning company where you come along and I'll give you life experience. And the reason life experience is, is good, life experience is what helps you develop your core skills. Some people can call it talent, it's core skills. It's the things like resilience and adaptability and teamwork and leadership all the skills in life that, yeah, it's great to read a book about it, but reading, in my opinion, reading a book about resilience is not going to make you more resilient. You need to do things that are a little bit hard for you, that have you a little bit outside your comfort zone, so that next time when you've got to do that particular task, it's not so hard anymore. The more times you can string those things together, the more you can build that, you know, resilience and toughness. Adaptability is the same to me, puts you in an unpredictable environment, you'll get better at working at unpredictable environments. Whether I'm taking someone now hiking up a mountain in Tasmania or I take them overseas to a foreign culture they know nothing about, it's all about the gathering of life experience which improves people, gives them more wisdom, gives them more knowledge, gives them more skills that they can take to any task that they have in life. There's a famous saying that I read again just recently that you can give people skills but you can't give them talent. I don't 100% agree with that because I believe that talent is the same as those core skills, those soft skills, and they can be developed with experience. If you hang around a bunch of exceptional leaders, it'll go a long way to making you a better leader. That's what I do now. Quite often I find that I've got to vary parts of an experience to tailor that to people I'm working with. There's no point taking someone that's never climbed a mountain before and trying to get them up the hardest mountain in Tasmania in the middle of winter when there's blizzards and snow because you'll just scare them away from mountains. They'll never want to go back. So you've got to kind of tailor the experience to the person. You've got to tailor the difficulty level. You've got to tailor to what they see, what they're passionate about as well. You know, like if you're taking someone to do something that they're passionate about, they'll have more resilience from the start and you'll be able to develop the person further. So that's kind of what the company has developed into now, which has led me to the veterans projects that I've sort of done as well. So my company has a project funded by the Tasmanian state government where I teach veterans to be venture guides. It came about because when I went to become a venture guide, I pretty much went, well, I was a patrol commander in the SAS. I don't need to go to TAFE and learn how to take someone out into the field. I got that. But not every veteran has that same philosophy, I suppose. They think, oh, I'm going to do a new task, like the military trained me to do things. I need to go and learn this new thing. So they don't value their core skills as high as they should. As far as taking someone into the field, any infantry section commander would be a gun at it just because he's already learnt how to live in the field, how to cook food in the field, how to navigate it's a few little bits and pieces that he might need to learn the differences between being in the military and running your own business or looking after a client, which wasn't his 
core sort of job, but he's got a lot of the actual technical skills already. And if he was a good section commander, he's without a doubt in my mind got all the actual soft skills that he needs. I run a program where we run a work experience style event and teach veterans how to be adventure guides. And the other big part of my business now is what you guys do. I love to share veterans experiences. Two major reasons for that. One is it's good for the veteran's own mental health if he's able to process it and be able to share it. It's good for the veteran. Also good for the veteran, which has less to do with him, is if the general public can understand the experiences that he's gone through, the hardships that he's had to face and the sacrifices that he's had to make. So I run, my business runs another project called the Point and Shoot Veterans Photography Exhibition. And that came out of COVID where I needed something to keep some veterans interested in the the trekking piece. We decided to run some photography exhibitions of veterans' photos. I quickly found that the public was a lot more interested in their military photos than their wilderness photos. And then where the gold then came from was the story that accompanied the photo. Most photos that you look at when you go to a gallery or even social media these days, you're scrolling through social media and you're seeing veterans photos and people just look at the photo and go oh that's a nice photo of the second world war or vietnam or something like that with our photo exhibition we get the story from the veteran that accompanies the photo quite often what's everyday life to the veteran the separation from family losing mates in afghanistan or these real hardships that's everyday life to them the public don't realize to them it's just another guy in a turret lav but once you hear the veteran story yeah that guy got killed by an id or something like that the actual gravity of the photo changes massively we've run it three years in a row now and we have tears at every exhibition but they're good tears like i have members of the public coming up to us wiping the tears out of their eyes thanking us for enlightening them some of the photos have been hugely powerful. One little story, I suppose, which I've told a couple of times. I had a daughter of a Vietnam veteran ring me in Tasmania and say, oh, I've got heaps of my father's photos. Can I give you some of my father's photos for the exhibition? I said, I'd love to have them. And we had a couple of conversations, which then led me to say, is your father still alive? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah he lives up the road. I said, can I speak to him? I'd love to get some of his stories that accompany the photos. And she said, oh, of course. She then walked across the road with the phone handed it to her dad. I then proceeded to have a two-hour conversation with her father on the phone. And I'm scribing madly in my notebook at all these amazing stories that accompanied the photos. And they were great. The guy was an engineer in Vietnam, clearing mines, just happened to have a camera, I think against policy at the time, but they're letting them get away with it now. He then eventually, an APC he was driving along, hit an IED evacuated back to Australia, moved back to Tassie, stayed in reserves for a few years and eventually discharged. Had this great conversation with him for a couple of hours on the phone. I've got pages and pages of notes. I've got a couple of dozens of his photos. He then handed the photo back to his daughter after saying goodbye. His daughter then proceeded to tell me she'd never heard him talk about his experiences in Vietnam 50 years later. And I'm like, that's the problem. Why are these people not sharing their stories? It's great for them and it's good for our country to be mature enough to listen to them and understand them. Hugely passionate about the point and shoot. Love sharing people's stories. Important stories, I think it's good for the country. How can people find out more about point and shoot? Point and shoot's actually growing a little bit. It's got its own website now. So the last three exhibitions we've had, we've put online, point and shoot, www.pointandshoot.online. But if you can't remember that, you can find me, put myself all over the internet now. So I've got a point assist website 
And at the Point Assist website is where the uh, Veterans Active Recreation Program, the one sponsored by the Tasmania State Government, there's a page of information there about that. But if all else fails, you can just search for Mark Doreen and I've got a website and I can answer any questions, direct you to the Point and Shoot. This year, the Point and Shoot's running again. At the moment, we've got an event in Brisbane sponsored by the Queensland RSL, which is tremendous. We're still looking for more sponsorship, want to run more events. Sydney, Canberra, Melbourne, Tasmania, all over the country, we'd love to take it. It's a great thing. We'll be calling for more photos and more stories soon. So I'm hoping that we can get a lot more veterans photos we get the photos cleared by defense so don't be afraid to send them in i've got a pretty good eye now of what is okay what will get cleared and what won't so we collect the photos send them off to defense get them cleared and display them to the public with the story behind them most commonly get told my stories aren't any good it's not the case some of the best photos we've had are the everyday stories i've got a photo i think from the second exhibition which was basically a guy's where he was sleeping and it was some fob. I can't remember what fob it was. It was the, when they were building some fob in Afghanistan. This was his bed space for a few days. I mean, it's the average infantryman wouldn't bat an eyelid at the photo. There's a set of webbing that the guy was using for a pillow, his rifle lying beside it. There's a bit of a HESCO barrier in the background. And the amount of community members I've seen stop and look at that photo and read the story and go, where's the guy's bed? It's like, no, he does, he's an infantryman. He doesn't have a bed. He sleeps on the ground. It's just the little stories like that actually educating people there's no story there's no photo that's not worthy send them in please (laughs) so after all that how do you reflect on your time in the military today grateful i've been able to have the experiences i've had i think now i've come through them all the you know the good times and the bad lots of hardship but a lot of good times as too like mateship that most people couldn't comprehend i'm the person today because of my 16 years in the regular army and i'm glad I'm the person I am today. So I think grateful is the word. That's how I reflect on it. Would you do it again? Yep. Yep. I would. Hopefully it wouldn't take me the second time. Yeah. <laughs> and the military is not easy. It's not for everyone. I've had heaps of near misses. I've lost good friends. Blaine Didims was a good friend of mine. Matt Locke was a good friend of mine. Most of the SAS blokes that got killed in either training or on operations in the last few years I've known, so you lose a lot of friends. But at the same time, it's an important job too. We wouldn't have a country without a military, so we need people that are willing to step up and defend our values, I suppose. Well, Mark, thank you for joining us today and sharing your incredible story, and thank you for your service. Oh, mate, thanks for having me, and thanks to you guys for sharing veteran stories there's a lot of amazing stories guys have lived epic lives a lot more impressive than mine and you're sharing them with the general public so thank you i'm thomas k and you've been listening to life on the line that was thomas k's conversation with mark doreen we have interviewed many other special air service regiment veterans as well as other special forces veterans check out our list of episodes in your podcast app or on our website. Follow us at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, at LOTL Pod on Twitter, and at Thistle Productions on LinkedIn. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thank you for listening, and lest we forget.